Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I'm Connie, along with professional turkey baster, Meg. She's going <laughs> to tell us about Lisa Kimmel, the little miss murder. Turkey baster. Do you baste seems... your turkey as you are ba- roasting no. it? No, but I do flip it upside down and then halfway through I flip it. But I found that it, you can just bag it, too, and the bag works fine. There's still something weird to me, though, about cooking food in pl- in plastic. Like, I like yeah. it, but I'm like, what is this doing? You're getting cancer. That's what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're getting, you're cooking cancer into your turkey. Uh, I didn't think about that until, like, you know, I love, like, a good crock pot, like, dips for any time I'm hosting. And I would put the bat, like, the crock pot, like, liners in there and it was probably six months ago where I was like, oh, crap. That's cooked this plastic. probably <laughs> not the best idea I've ever had. People are going to be sick from coming to my kid's like fourth birthday party. <laughs> Maybe they're fine. I, I do like the ease of the cleanup, but I'm also like, you could just let that soak for like 20 minutes. <laughs> It'd be about the same, I think. Or you'll forget about it, and the next day it'll smell like feet. Dude. And you're like, shit. Next day. You're talking about like four days later when I'm finally (laughs) like, okay, I'm going to pick this thing up now. (laughs) My kitchen smells like death and what's that? Buffalo chicken dip or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Anyways, happy Thanksgiving week. Yes. Is not a happy Thanksgiving episode. It is not even really relevant to Thanksgiving. I think last year we did the, the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day bombing. Yeah, the Thanksgiving Day bombing. But not this year, friends. This year we've got kind of a crazy one. And I guess I'll just get into it. But here is your trigger warning. Um, let's see. Murder, rape, uh, abduction, held against their will, suicide. Um, uh, I think that's it. There's probably that's, some other ones in there. It's like, that's a lot. It is. It is. I was, hopefully I didn't miss any because there is, there is part, there is a baby in this episode too, but nothing bad happens to the baby. We're going to preface it with that. So we're not scared of it coming. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Anyways. You, you worried me for a minute. Cause I was like, I just asked her if this <laughs> you is just said before we started. Is this about a kid? No, it's not about a kid. But at 9.06 p.m. on March 25th, 1988, a highway patrol officer pulled over a young woman going 88 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone. A woman, 18-year-old Lisa Kimmel, drove a 1988 Honda CRX-SI with the personalized Montana license plate Lil Miss. L-I-L-M-I-S-S. And uh, she was very proud of her car. She would bought it herself. It, I mean, it's, this is 88, and she bought an 88. You know, she was very excited about those, like her first big girl purchase. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And at this time, though, in Wyoming, where she was pulled over, if an out-of-state driver was pulled over and they got a speeding ticket, they had to pay cash on the spot. Can you imagine if that was like that now? I'd be like, uh, I don't even carry cash. <laughs> I just remember going when we were in Michigan and we got pulled over. 
And that was a $347 ticket. If they were like, we need cash. I'd be like, we don't even have money for gas, man. <laughs> I got 10 bucks. Got friend. $10. <laughs> so she didn't have that cash either. Uh, the officer that pulled her over, he had Lisa follow him to an ATM in the closest town so that she could try to get cash out to pay this fine. But this was 1988 and bank cards weren't interchangeable yet. So she couldn't even get money out of the ATM with her bank card. Um, and the officer could have taken her to jail that night until someone could bring her money uh, or till she could get the money. But instead, he thought that Lisa seemed to be of good character and he just pretty much made her pinky swear that she would send a check when she got back to Montana where she was headed. Mm, I feel like when you're doing a lot of deals with cash, I'm not saying that police in the past could have been sketchy sketchy <laughs> about that. But I it was right. alarming. Yeah, it does not sit right. I can see why that would never fly today. No. If that ever happened to you, if you drove in the 80s and you got pulled over and had to pay cash on the spot, let us know. I'm interested. Yeah, I need to know about this. <laughs> but Lisa was a good kid. She was very responsible. She was the kind of kid when she got to Montana, she would send a check. Um, she was an 18-year-old Arby's restaurant manager who had just graduated high school the year before. She had competed in the Miss Teen pageant. She was a cheerleader. She had won a college scholarship to major in accounting. And she turned it down because she loved working at Arby's. She loved working with customers and she wanted to work her way up and go up the business ranks instead of going to college, um, which was fine. She liked yeah, doing the, it. Yeah. And I think especially in the 80s, that was mm -hmm. it was more it was okay to do stuff like that. You, nobody looked, they were like, yeah, that's great. You're going to be a manager. Perfect. Yeah. So that officer was a pretty good judge of character because she wouldn't do something like not pay a speeding ticket or not show up somewhere that she was expected to be. But unfortunately this officer was the last person to knowingly see Lisa Kimmel alive. Mm -hmm. Ed Jarek was Lisa's boyfriend and the man that she had been driving to pick up that Friday evening. He was going to meet her family that weekend for the first time. He had expected her to arrive at 1 a.m. on Saturday. She had left. She'd taken her mom to the airport and then left that evening to drive from Colorado, where she lived, up to Montana, where her family lived. But when she still hadn't arrived, Around 3 a.m., he started to worry. And by 7.30, he was making phone calls. And I know it's hard to imagine. Like, you can't just send a text to someone to be like, hey, yeah. where are you? Uh, because I think about if I'm coming to visit you, I can just send you my GPS location. And it'll give yeah. you an exact time of when I'm going to be there and where I'm at at that moment. Yep. But in 1988, most people didn't even have a cell phone. And if they did, they couldn't use it in rural wyoming no it was like one of those big ones <laughs> you had to it was attached with car phones oh like attached yeah to your i used car. to wear a car phone oh, <laughs> that that was for the real fancy people 
Sorry, I just thought of it. I rode in a limo once that had a car phone, and I was just like, this is the coolest moment (laughs) in my life right now. Uh, So Ed tried to call her at her Denver, Colorado apartment to no avail. Lisa was the manager at an Arby's in Aurora, Colorado, and her mother, Sheila, was actually the regional manager of all the Arby's in the area, which kind of explains why she wanted to do the right. She had seen it. You could be successful doing that. Um, on the weekdays, she and her mother stayed in separate apartments in the same complex in um, Denver, Colorado. And then on weekends, they would drive up to their family home in Billings, Montana, where Lisa's dad and Sheila's husband, Ronald, lived. And Lisa had two younger sisters that also lived there, too. It's a little so- weird. I thought I, you know, I thought that was kind of weird too. That's like a very close family dynamic there. One that you're driving up every weekend to see them, but also that you work two states away and then. Yeah, that it's it's. I think it's more weird to me that, I mean, it must have been a like a good. Are there not Arby's like in Montana? Like that's what would be. I don't know. I have no. I don't know what Arby's was like in 1988. Really. Yeah, that's true. I don't, it's just kind of strange to me that, I don't know. I mean, Denver, Colorado is probably pretty pop in area compared to Billings, Montana. So maybe it was just like a larger area. Maybe she got more money to yeah, work that's in that true. area. Who knows? Um, Ed, he initially tried to call her at that apartment that she lived at during the week and she didn't answer. So he called his own sister, who also lived in Denver, and got the number for the Denver Highway Patrol. This dude is a gold star because immediately he's calling Highway Patrol. He filed a missing persons report before he could even get a hold of her family. As soon as he felt like something was wrong, he made moves. He spoke to Colorado police, and then he called Wyoming Highway Patrol as well and did the same thing. He tried calling her friends in Montana over and over until he finally got a hold of one of them. He tried calling her parents, but they had gone out skiing that morning and no one could reach them. Lisa's whole plan had been that she was going to drive up to Montana by leaving Colorado and going up through Wyoming. Her boyfriend lived in Cody, Wyoming, and then the two of them... We're going to go up to Montana. They were going to visit her friends and then they were going to go. He had met her mom, but he hadn't met her dad or her sister. So they were going to meet the fam. Uh, normally, she would just drive straight up from Denver. It was like one highway straight to Montana. Mm-hmm. But this wasn't, she had never gone this way before. She had never gone through Wyoming and taken these almost like back roads into a different state. I don't like that. Sheila, her mom, had actually flown up to Montana that Friday and she offered that she said, I'll cancel my flight, I'll ride with you. But Lisa's car was a two-seater and she was picking up Ed. It wouldn't work. She just told her mom how much she loved her and how much she loved her dad. And the last words Sheila ever heard from her daughter were, Don't worry, mom, I will, after Sheila told her to drive carefully. And Sheila did not believe it when Lisa's district manager called and said that Lisa was missing. And she still didn't believe it when her friends called later and was like, yes, she is missing. We don't know where she is. Ed had called her parents but missed them. So he had called her work 
police or friends get Man, you an end. Stand up guy. I know, right? They hadn't been dating that long either. Uh, it was just like he's meeting her family for the first time and he's just straight up knows what to do. So good for you, Ed. Uh, by 1 p.m., he drove up to Montana himself to meet Lisa's friend, to go to her parents' house, to find out what had happened. And then they all reconvened around 4.30 and started looking for her seriously. They drove roads she would have taken. They went to they went back through every police station that they might hit on her route. Inevitably, they changed her missing status from overdue arrival to attempt to locate but because it hadn't been 72 hours, they couldn't define her as a missing person yet. And it's 88, so it's not even 24 at this point. It's that full sucks. three days. I know. Around mm-hmm. 8.30, they learned about her speeding ticket that she had gotten the night before. It cut out a huge amount of area that they could remove from a potential search area. Sheila happened to bump into a family friend that also happened to be a private investigator while she was out grabbing cigarettes that night. And he saw that she was upset. He asked what was going on and she filled him in. And that night he went to help. He drove to Wyoming to meet Ed and Ron. I have Everyone just really was like, where is she? We are going to find her. And while they were in Wyoming, Sheila and her sister were printing up missing persons posters she her sister owned a typesetting shop and they made thousands of posters and started to circulate them ron and the pi started to drive back up to montana and they stopped at every single police station to give them information ed and al's stepfather al was the pi um they chartered a plane the next day and did an air search holy shit yeah so lisa went went missing Friday and by Sunday afternoon they had initiated ground and air searches across two states in addition to sending out thousands of missing persons flyers the media hadn't even reported that she was missing until the 29th Um, they finally did they said a teen had disappeared from Wyoming they described her very distinctive personalized license plate that said Lil Miss and her brand new 1988 Honda CRX, which had not been seen or recovered. You'd think if it was an accident or if if she had been taken from it, her car would turn up, but it disappeared. Within a week, they had conducted more air searches, had extensive media coverage, completed searches of the areas where tips came in that she was last seen, but on April 2nd, Yellowstone County Sheriff's officers arrived at Sheila and Ron's house with news. They had found a female, but they needed some additional physical descriptors. Her parents described her shoulder-length blonde hair, her blue eyes. She was very petite. They They noted that she had a small scar on her left cheek and a permanent silver retainer on her lower jaw. Detective George Jensen told them that they believed that they had found Lisa in the North Platte River in Wyoming that day. Around 11 a.m., two friends had taken their children fishing in the North Platte River Mm. near Old Government Bridge in Casper, Wyoming. Their kids had went downriver to fish, and the adults had gone in the opposite direction. But after an hour and after no no bites, they started moving downriver as well. One of the men moved to higher ground to clean mud off his boots, 
and could clearly see a body floating face down in the river. The other man happened to be wearing hip waders and he walked into the river to confirm what they had seen. And they got their kids, got out of the area and called police because they knew exactly who they had found. The media had covered it extensively. They had a pretty good idea of what Mm. they had come across. When investigators did arrive, Lisa's body was still face down. She was caught in a bar in the river. It was less than two feet deep. And she appeared to still have color, so they were unsure if the cold water had preserved her body and she'd been there for a while or if she just hadn't been there for very long at all. Before moving her, they photographed the evidence and the area for more than an hour when she was taken to shore and finally flipped over for the first time. Investigators were shocked to find that she had been stabbed six times in the chest. The deepest wounds were between five and a half and six and a half inches, and they all pierced vital organs. None of them touched her ribs. It was her heart, her lungs. Someone had been very meticulous and someone had known what they were doing. She was wearing only her underwear, her socks, her jewelry, and her watch, which was stopped at exactly 940. It didn't say if it was AM or PM because the watch couldn't, you couldn't tell. Yeah. They searched the area for evidence, but could find nothing. There wasn't a tire track. There wasn't a cigarette butt. There was, however, an answer as to how long Lisa might have been in the river. On the side of the old government bridge was a very large blood stain. It had rained two days before, and the blood hadn't feathered or spread at all from rainfall, and it also hadn't accumulated any dust or dirt. So they estimated that this had to have happened within the last 36 to 48 hours. A rape kit was performed and unknown semen was found in Lisa's underwear. Her autopsy showed that someone had fed her right before she had been murdered. The doctor conducting her autopsy also found that she had bruising around her wrists and ankles. They estimated that Lisa had been abducted, restrained, and sexually tormented for up to six days before she was brutally murdered. She had been stabbed several times, um, and because they were in such meticulous spots, they kept that secret. They did tell the media that she had been stabbed, but they didn't say where or what it was like. Um. They also kept another part secret before she had been stabbed. She had actually been hit in the head with a lead pipe as well. So she had blunt force trauma to the back of her skull. But there was no suspects. There was no physical evidence. Detectives really leaned into Lisa's car because it was new. It was unique. And they kind of look like it kind of look like a tiny wannabe DeLorean. Yeah. Plus a personalized license plate. So this was not, it's not a car you saw everywhere. Um, And someone they thought would see it eventually and it would help them find out who had done this. But months came and went and nothing new surfaced. Mm. Unsolved Mysteries ran a segment. Tips poured in, but nothing solid. And it really fueled a very intense rumor mill of what might have happened to Lisa. There was talks of people mistaking her for someone who had ratted out a drug dealer. There was stuff that she had been involved in drugs and they were following up on all of these potential leads, you know, but they weren't, they were just people wanting to get involved. Yeah. 
The next year, on March 28, 1989, Sheila, Lisa's mom, received an urgent message from one of Lisa's friends. Her friend, Terry, had gone down to place flowers on Lisa's grave in Billings, but when they arrived, they found a note covered with plastic film, and it read, Lisa, there aren't any words to say how much you're missed. The pain never leaves. It's so hard without you. You'll always believe in me. Your death is my painful loss, but heaven's sweet gain. Love always, Stringfellow Hawk. And it was dated 11-13-88. So it might sound sweet and sincere. Sounds creepy. Yeah, but Stringfellow Hawk was a character from a show called Airwolf that came out in the early 80s. And there was an episode of this show in which a woman lived with the main character, Stringfellow Hawk. They lived in his cabin for six days while he fed her and they had sex. And on the sixth day, the woman was murdered in the show. So her parents rushed it to the sheriff and he had heard so many crazy stories that he just didn't take it seriously. He just took it as another weird made up thing. And that infuriated them. Understand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They sought out help from the attorney general because they were like, no, we we want a federal agency. We want someone with more resources to be able to investigate this. We don't think that the sheriff is doing enough. He was doing a lot though. Like this was taking up a lot of his time. It's just that there wasn't, he had no leads. Yeah. And it's when you have so, and it sucks, but like when you have so many rumors and it's like so sensationalized, and it's like a constant rumor mill coming. A victim's you don't know family what to believe. Yeah. And it's like, uh, okay, this is, and I mean, that is, that's weird. It's far fetched. You would think it's just, uh. they guessed, it was suggested that this person, whoever had done it, had done some stuff like this before. And for some reason, he became very attached to Lisa. And that is why she was held for several days. And so the note kind of just played into this very, I think, weird fantasy that this person. Yeah, I agree. You don't stab someone six times, miss ribs, and hit only vital organs if you've never done that before. Yeah, another really gross part was that her pubic hair had been shaved, not by her. Oh. Yeah. So it was just a very, Uh, like someone was enacting whatever sick fantasy that they thought they had. So her parents, I'm sorry, that her parents decide they go to the federal agency and they're like, we want help. And they go over the sheriff, Ron Ketchum, that's his name. Uh, They go over his head and it infuriates him. They all get into a big argument. Ultimately, Sheila and Ron got federal support, and then the sheriff found out about it. He called them. They he called the federal agency that was taking over some of it, and they told him that yes, they had formed a task force. Please don't go public with it. But he did. He called oh, a preference press conference and like acted like kind of a big baby. Like called out the parents, said that he was doing all he could. It was a mess look i'm sorry and i am a parent so i will say this and he can suck it but 
if something horrible happens to my children and I know there are other, not necessarily that he's doing a bad job, but if there are people that can come in and do more that have yeah, more exactly. money, more resources, more training, I'm going to call them. And I don't yeah. really give a shit if your feelings get hurt and your little boy energy comes out, but that's what's going to happen. Exactly. And that's what it was. His pride was hurt. These yeah. people went over his head. He thought he had a handle on this and they didn't feel the same. And everyone saw it. <laughs> And honestly, everyone made fun of him, like the entire town. There were like political comics and their newspaper about it, like making fun of him. Oh, yeah. You're going to you're going to act yeah, like a big media, baby. Yeah, exactly. And the media were like, this is his ego. This is his yeah, ego. you have a temper tantrum on TV and you expect people to have your back. Like, thank you for proving why they needed to have other people come in. Yeah, it took such a toll on this sheriff that he was admitted to the hospital on the two-year anniversary of Lisa's death in an apparent suicide attempt. Oh, uh, yikes. Those close to him had been worried about him. They requested a welfare check, and he was found in his home unconscious. They, He said it was strictly medical, um, but media and public weren't so sure. Ultimately, that guy decided not to run for sheriff again. Um and when the new sheriff was elected, Ron Ketchum became a suspect in Lisa's case. Another tip came in that he had pulled women over for no reason, and he had been seen pulling a car over that fit Lisa's car's description that same night. He said that he wasn't even working that night, but after they went in and looked, he had been working. So he gave a blood test, and the blood test confirmed that it was not his semen. Oh, I know. <laughs> you left me. Hey, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I know, crazy. The sheriff. No, this, um, this actually happened to several men who became suspects and they requested, they got blood tests from them in order to be exonerated. They started calling the new sheriff, uh, the vampire because he was just pulling blood from anyone he thought might be. A suspect. I support that. Ron Ketchum though. And I do want to note this. He did end up committing suicide um, after all of this. I think he just, I think this case specifically took a very hard toll on his life. Um, Like he felt a lot of regret for maybe. I don't know him. I don't know the circumstances, but based on what I've read, it kind of seemed like. Oh, that's very unfortunate. It it broke him a little bit. Um, But something did start to click with the federal investigation, the likelihood of a serial killer in the Great Basin area. And the Great Basin area is in the western United States. There's lots of rivers, but none of them go to the ocean. They go to like the salt lakes or other basins of water. Uh, it's like Yellowstone's up there, that kind mm-hmm. of place. So years before Lisa in 1982, And honestly, there was a body found in 1972 as well. Um, But in 1982, two bodies of young women were found. One had been dumped in the North Platte River, just like Lisa. Belinda Grantham had been visiting friends in Kansas before she began to make the trip back to come home. She never got out of Wyoming. Um, Another body was discovered that same year. So three bodies in 1982. Naomi Kidder had attempted to hitchhike home. 
her mom reported her missing on July 1st, but her body wasn't discovered until August of 1982. In 1983, Janelle Johnson's body was found. Uh, Lisa was 1988. Amy Bechdel was found in 1989. And Amy Bechdel's case is, it could be another episode on its own because there was a lot of, she was never found. Um, She just went missing, uh, I believe. I don't know. I'd have to, don't quote me on that. But that case is also very interesting if you want something to fall into after you hear this one. They found a couple in 1990. They found a man and wife separated by hundreds of miles. Oh. Uh, like someone had taken them both, gotten rid of the man, and then kept the woman and gotten rid of her in a different area. A young woman was found in 1991 and another one in 1993. All I in the say, same area. I would say the likelihood of a serial killer is pretty high at that point. Yeah, and they were all aggressively sexually tortured. They were found in very similar positions. Um, I know that you know who John Douglas is, Mm -hmm. but if no one else does, he pretty much invented serial killer profiling. And one of his protégés is Greg Cooper. And Greg Cooper played a really big part in Lisa's case, and he believes that there were actually two serial killers in that area at the same time, and that they were responsible for the 11 murders that committed that were committed in that area. It wouldn't be the first time we saw that. (laughs) We saw two in one spot. Even in Montana, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe that was one of them. I'd have to go back and listen to that episode. Uh, Greg stated that Lisa was a low risk individual and that it was likely she just met a psychopath in the wrong place at the wrong time, but they wouldn't know what happened to her until 2002. Yes. So, they think that between her getting pulled over and her getting back on the road, she pulled off at a rest stop and someone saw her and then followed her and got her out of her car somehow, probably by force. And we're going to talk about that right now. Did they ever find the car? Not yet. They do. I'll give you that. They do, but not yet. It would start unfolding... In 1997, the Breeden family was on a trip in their travel van. They kind of like lived in this travel van. Shannon and Scott Breeden and their five-month-old baby were driving when their van broke down. They had enough supplies for a little while, so they kind of just pulled off to the side of the road to camp and hoped someone would stop and help them out because they were pretty far from a town or gas station or anything. It was 18 hours after they pulled over, another van pulled up behind them. And they were so grateful because they were running low on water and they were running low on supplies. They were just happy to see anyone. So this van pulls up behind him and he opens his lid, like his lid, (laughs) his hood, (laughs) and starts checking his van. And they're like, oh, no, how's he going to help us if his van's broken down? This is not going to end out well. But he put his hood down and came over and asked him if they were okay. And they were like, we're fine. Our van broke down. Would you mind giving us a ride to the closest town so that we could get, you know, someone to come tow it and we can get gas and all the stuff. And the driver agreed. So Shannon and baby Cody got into the back of this man's van and Scott got into the front seat. After a while, 
The man asked if one of them would drive. He had been driving for quite a while and he really wanted to take a nap. Uh, Scott's license was suspended, so Shannon said she would drive. No problem. She handed Cody to her husband, got in the driver's seat, and started driving. This man pulled a rifle on them and demanded that Shannon drive into the desert. But Mama Bear, super badass Shannon, just starts driving erratically. She did pull into the desert, but she just starts driving all over the place, making the van go back and forth. And she made her husband tuck and roll with their baby out of the van. And she jumped after him. And then he chased them straight up. <laughs> so Scott placed their baby under a some brush and hid him. And then went after this guy, got the rifle out of his hand and beat him in the head with it. But he just kept on coming. So... The guy pulls out a knife. He gets the guy's knife from him and has to stab him with the guy's own knife. And then this couple grabbed their baby, stole that dude's van, and just skirted the fuck out of there. Hell yeah. yeah. That's the kind of content I like to hear. <laughs> it was like, just reading, I was like, this is awesome. Scott told Shannon to run his head over, but she missed. <laughs> and they drove straight to police. Scott, my man. <laughs> run his head over. Honestly, yes. If that ever happens, run their fucking head over. Do it. Uh, so this guy, this maniac, was Dale Eaton. Born February 10th, 1945. Ooh, to an he's abusive... an Aquarius. <laughs> uh, to an abusive father and a mother with severe mental illness. At 16, he had his own psychiatric evaluation after he assaulted someone with a deadly weapon. He was sent to a boys' reform school where he did well because structure, when you have structure. had none. Yep. yep. At 19, he went to jail multiple times for theft. At 25, he got married, kind of chilled out, became a productive member of society for like a hot second. But at 26 years old, he was in a fight with his wife. And he almost strangled his friend's daughter to death over a minor disagreement after this fight with his wife. We should also note that the first body in that area was found in 1972 when Dale Eden was 26. And there's kind of a link there. He was divorced in 1979. He was 33. And right around that time is when a lot of bodies start turning up in the Great Basin area. So the three from 1982, Janelle in 1983, and then from 1984 to 1986, Dale became in an on-again, off-again relationship with his ex-wife before threatening to kill himself, and then he was committed to a hospital where they diagnosed him with depression and thought disorder. So it kind of seems like any time he would get mad at his wife or his, you know, if they were off he would take out his frustration on a random woman or person. So Dale is arrested. They find him and they arrest him for the abduction of the Breeden family. But his story just goes back and forth. It changes so much that they considered him mentally unstable. And because of this, he was able to take a plea agreement. He served 99 days in jail. 
Are you shitting me? Nope. He promised to be good, and they gave him a two and a half year suspended sentence in the halfway house. And they gave him his van back. What? Yeah, because he needed to work. The same one he just kidnapped a whole ass family with. Don't worry, though, because within two months, in June of 1998, he dipped out, and they put out a warrant for his arrest. They find him, and they find a brand new rifle in his vehicle, which he is not allowed to have. He took it over state lines. Federal prison. Here, Dale comes. Bye. Smell you later, Dale. And I know I'm kind of going quickly through Dale's transgressions there because I want to get back to Lisa. So Dale, (laughs) I have to tell you this too because it just is this very crazy cyclical story. So Dale's in federal prison in 2001. And in this prison, you would put up a piece of cardboard in the window to signal that you were like pooping and you wanted privacy. But for some reason, uh, I think it said that they told all the inmates that were in the common areas to go back to their cells. Either Dale didn't hear it or his roommate didn't realize he needed privacy at that time. But when Dale's bunkmate walked back into the cell where Dale had had his cardboard up, Dale punched him square in the head and his cellmate immediately died from a ruptured vertebral, vertebral artery. Yeah. And so I wish you guys could see my face. Like what? (sighs) So they charge him with manslaughter. And for the very first time, because he's in federal prison and now charged with murder, you know, he has to submit a blood sample. Uh, He has it up till this point. He has not submitted a blood sample at all. Kidnap a whole family and not have to submit a blood sample. Well, they only gave him 99 days in prison. Why would it, why would they take his blood, you know? Do better, Ugh. guys. Do, Do better. better. But, and I know Connie loves this, uh, they stored in CODIS. And I know Connie loves CODIS. <laughs> I love CODIS so much. Yes. So it's Wyoming. And this didn't really surprise me to read this, but Wyoming State Lab was behind on their updates, which Mm. I think every state lab is pretty much behind on their updates. Um, But there had just been so many advances in DNA testing in that chunk of the early 2000s that Mm -hmm. it was very hard for everyone to keep up with it. So in the year 2000, so that was 2001. I'm going to go back a year to 2000. Um, a company had created a DNA analysis on the sperm found in Lisa's underpants and they created a profile and entered it into CODIS. Nothing happened at that time, but a year later when Dale Eaton's DNA profile was put into CODIS, ding, 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 match popped up 14 years later. Fuck you, Dale. (laughs) Like, so uh... detectives, hear this and they rush to the federal prison where he's being held at and they ask him about Lisa and he's like wasn't that that girl that was driving to Montana and they're like yeah your DNA was found in her underwear and he did not say another word Dale Eaton owned property in Wyoming right off of highway 2026 which is the same highway that Lisa had gone missing from they began to obtain search warrants but they were finally able to tell Sheila and Ron that they believed that they found who was responsible for their daughter's death. 
and he was in prison 10 miles away from their house. Eaton had three vehicles stashed at a friend's house while he was in prison, and a search of them revealed zip ties, wire ties, handcuffs, an axe, a club, and a blue dildo. And while that is disturbing, what they were about to find would be the linchpin in Dale Eaton's guilt. While searching his property, which was disgusting, by the way, it was like a junkyard, they found an area that looked as though he had begun to dig a well and a septic tank. And they talked to his neighbors and they said, yeah, he did try to dig a well back uh, back in the late 80s. We told him it was stupid that you'd have to dig 100 feet to reach water, but he was still just trying to do it. So they pulled in a backhoe and they started digging in that well area and they unearthed a hubcap with an H on it. And as they continued to dig around the property, the backhoe pulled something else out of the dirt, a personalized Montana license plate that read Lil Miss. After digging more than eight feet down, they unearthed Lisa Kimmel's entire 1988 Honda CRX. He buried the whole car? Eight feet underground. Yes. Which, yeah, if he... that doesn't scream like, I did this on purpose, I don't know what does. Yeah. They also unearthed all of the contents that had been in Lisa's car. Her Arby's hat was in there. Her gifts that she had gotten from friends. She had um, like a rosary that she had gotten. All of it. They found all of it. They also found a 3030 shell casing, but Lisa hadn't been shot. But the Breeden family had been threatened with a 3030 rifle that matched that casing. It would be another year before the DA would finally be able to charge Dale Eaton with a menagerie of things. First degree murder, premeditated murder, first and second degree sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, and robbery. And when they went to trial, they were really trying to bank on the insanity defense. Like the majority. No, of, no I know. The no. majority of the court documents I read. Sit down, Dale. Sit down. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Dale. They, they all relate to like his chaotic childhood and his abusive childhood. But Dale's ex-wife revealed that in addition to Lisa, the Breedens, the other women that may have met their death at the hands of Dale Eaton, he also abused and molested at least one of his own children. This isn't counting instances of Eaton assaulting co-workers and friends. He was a nightmare. He was a problem. You can be broken from a troubled childhood. There is no doubt about that. It does It doesn't excuse one ounce of the stuff this guy had done. And you cannot use an insanity defense if you have the thought process to bury a damn car eight feet underground. Right? Exactly. Bye. So, (laughs) bye. You'd think that putting this guy forever wouldn't be an issue. And it wouldn't have been, except that the DA scheduled to try the Eaton case was charged with forgery, larceny, unlawful use of a credit card, and a bunch of other fraudulent activities directly before they were supposed to go to trial in the spring of 2003. I know. (laughs) 
poor Sheila and Ron, they're just, they finally get to this place and then they have a DA. Ron is like, let me go. I, I, he's 10 miles away. I got this. Uh, see you. Smell you later, guys. The DA uh, was able to ensure that the punishment being sought for Dale Eden was the death penalty. But Kimmel wanted him off of their, they, the Kimmels, they wanted him off of their daughter's case. Understandably so. These people have been doing the most for 14 years. They're not going to let this dummy ruin it. So in August of 2003, he actually stepped down and the assistant DA took over. Trial began March 3rd, 2004, and was completed March 17th, 2004. Eaton's defense, they didn't even try to deny that he murdered her. They just tried to say that it wasn't premeditated and that there was no evidence of robbery or sexual assault, which isn't true. You literally have semen. semen. Yeah, that is how they found you. Exactly. Right. Just a mess. Dale Eaton had abducted Lisa, aggressively raped her and kept her tied up like an animal for six days. And on the sixth day, he crushed her skull with a lead pipe and stabbed her six times in vital organs before he threw her over a bridge into the freezing water below. And no one could deny that. So he did get the death penalty. Um, He is just the... One of the worst of the worst. And did he ever say why? No, he never said anything. Um, and it is assumed that he is responsible for several of those other women that were found in the Great Basin area, but nothing has really been confirmed. Uh, Amy Bechtel, Codis, one day, Codis, one day, it's gonna pop. Yeah, Amy Bechtel, uh, there's a lot of speculation over her case. Some think that it was her husband and other people think that it was Dale Eaton. Um, I don't know enough about that case to really give you my own opinion, but it deserves another look into. Uh, as far as I know, he was alive still as of 2019 and appealing his cases, but he is not going anywhere. The judge actually tacked on an additional lifetime sentence on top of the death penalty just in case something like that happened. Like there was no way he was going to get out of anything. <laughs> like he, speed it up though. Like Yeah. Yes. You are absolutely right. And time to go, Dale. Man, I don't know. I- it was just wild. Like when I started researching this, I was like, Oh no, that's sad. And then it just continuously got crazier and crazier. Just the car buried like that. I don't know why, but that doesn't sit well with me. That's that Greg Cooper guy, that other FBI serial killer profiler. He was like, that indicates that he was trying to keep a trophy. Yeah. He was trying to keep a trophy of that murder. And that is not the first time he has done that. No, that's a sick, as bad as it sounds, sexual thing, knowing that he has that at his house. Yeah, hidden, like underground. Man, I want to bite him. (laughs) Did you say bite him or fight him? Both. (laughs) I want to Mike Tyson that dude just rip his ear off. 
Yeah, that's uh And just think him pooping is the reason why all he got caught. Exactly, right? Like he and he felt really bad because he liked his bunkmate. Like he legitimately was upset that that had happened. But like also, if your first instinct is to just like full on punch someone in the side of the head because like they might have seen you out of the corner of their eye you pooping. Pooping like bro, yeah. you're in jail. <laughs> like you're in jail. Anybody that's can see you pooping if they wanted. But uh, yeah, that's that's Man. just a Kimmel. I'm glad that they it got makes, justice for that. It's kind of gross though that they didn't like that was the first time they had gotten blood from him. Yeah, I thought that was crazy too. Like at no, this guy's been in in and out of jail numerous times. At no point, and, like and I know kidnapping. like that was Codis was pretty new, or like not new, but getting more stuff put into it so yeah it just that had is, to be like the exact her, her dad was like a it has it'll take a miracle to solve this case and that's absolutely what this was it was a miracle that like all I, of those things came together yeah that is a that was somebody that was the universe being like all right dale you're done yeah like her, you're done they filed a civil lawsuit against um Dale Eaton for wrongful death and his property was awarded to Sheila and Ron and they burned everything on that property down to the ground on what would have been Lisa's 36th birthday. That's I a birthday it. cake I'd love to see. Just like a whole f- <laughs> a whole place I just burned in place. I love that. Yeah, I thought that was Because awesome. you know he had other trophies there. Uh, absolutely he did. Um... He was scheduled to be put to death in 2010, but he got a stay of execution in December of 2009. I know it was overturned in 2014. And so the state is seeking the death penalty. And as of 2019 now, or as of 2019, he is the only inmate on Wyoming's death row. I hope it's lonely and I hope he hates it. And I hope he has hemorrhoids and I hope his poops hurt and everyone watches him. Mm-hmm. Was it, it uh, him that wrote the letter? It never said. I couldn't find anything. I was looking. I was like, so what's up with this letter? I think it was. Yeah. Cause like, honestly, who I think would it know just... that they kept her for six days? Yeah, I think it just played into like some weird sick fantasy he had and the fact that he had fed her, he had fed her some kind of like beef stew right before she had been murdered. So like he was I wonder if she like humanized herself enough to like I think you know... that's what it was. I think it was this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a hitchhiker and and there's nothing wrong with those women that were hitchhiking or that were in just different like life circumstances, but this was just like a good kid who happened to be driving and um the the officer that pulled her over that night like had very intense guilt about it like felt like oh, he should yeah. have just thrown just her in jail. Her jail yeah and he they he felt so bad that he went up and talked to Sheila and Ron and they were like it's not your fault like no one could have known that this would have happened so he doesn't blame himself now but he is like an advocate for people not getting personalized license plates like that because he thinks that it led to her being targeted like a license plate like Lil Miss 
yeah, knowing that it's that. probably a woman. That yeah. Kind of thing. Which honestly, my hot take is that you shouldn't have personalized license plates anyways. They're easier for people to remember, to stalk you, to do all kinds of stuff. And stop putting stickers of your kids on the back of your windows too. Well, we're just that on too. that little. <laughs> we'll just we'll just pop that in there also, which we have talked about before. <laughs> uh, These make you a target, and it doesn't make it. It's not like it doesn't like give anyone an excuse to like assault you or murder you. It's just an added like level of protection you can do for yourself. Yeah, stuff that. You don't, and you don't have to do anything. That's it. You just don't do it. Like, don't personalize your last plate. Don't get family stickers, that kind of stuff. And honestly, um, with his rap, she and he, she could have, if she had pulled over into like as cute and like petite as she was, had she pulled over into that rest station, I think he would have followed her anyways. Yeah. And there's no. There's no specific, no one knows really what specifically happened because he didn't say anything. Um, there's a couple of books on it. There's a book called Rivers of Blood, which I read, and it's very detailed. It's very good. And then her mother actually also wrote a book. Sheila wrote a book. It's called The Murder of Lil Miss. And she um, just talked about how the bureaucracy of everything and how they had to go around all this stuff and just the general drama surrounding everything. Man, that sucks. Yeah. Because she had a good boyfriend. Yeah, I know. I, I, I was reading that and I'm like, man, he got to work. I could probably be missing for two days before my husband wasn't just like, <laughs> she ran like, off. She's thinks you're just at Wait a hotel. A Did she tell me she was leaving? <laughs> is she supposed to be doing something right now is she at target she's been at target for two days i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> the christmas stuff is out so it could take a while to check it all out i that is one of the things i'm doing tomorrow morning since i like took the day off work i'm going to target we got uh we got my son like one of those like vr headsets for christmas oh cool the quest is that what it is yeah yeah, those and are fun. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, and you'd like us to keep putting out ad-free content, here are some of the ways that you can help support Gruesome. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us, and you get a I knew them before they were famous moment. Follow Gruesome Podcast on Instagram and talk to us on our posts. Engage with us. We love to hear from you there. If you'd like to send a donation, we have a Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and to gain access to exclusive Patreon perks. If a one-time donation is more your thing, you can find our Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and our PayPal using our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether or not that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're, we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye. Bye.